Good morning, Lakeside. Thank you so much for joining us. I want to thank Al and the team for leading us today as Derek is away on vacation and enjoying some time away with his family this past week. We were on vacation uh, as a family, and we were in a marina with really nice boats, boats, boats that cost more than our house, and we were looking over them, and this guy, shirtless, couple gold change, chains, and his companion decked out in Gucci from head to toe, they come whisking past us, and they hop on one of the boats that I'm assuming is theirs. I don't really know if it was, uh, but I'm assuming it was their boat. We were just checking out the, checking out the boat, and the boat had a, had a flag that said the good life, and I just remember remarking on that and, and thinking through that. And what was interesting was a couple, probably about an hour later, we asked the boys, hey, where do you want to go to dinner? Uh, we were letting them pick where to go to dinner, and they chose Taco Bell. And why we still allow them to choose the dinner destination is beyond me, uh, but we said, where do you want to go to dinner? So the fault was on ours. Uh, so we were going to Taco Bell. Uh, occasionally, I'm like, really? And they're like, yeah, Taco Bell. So, okay, we went to uh, Taco Bell, and we sat down with our Taco Bell feast, and one of, my, one of my boys is eating this taco, and he stops, and he said, this is the good life. <laughs> like, as he's, as, he's eating, as he's eating Taco Bell, and it just dawned on me that, you know, in life, frequently, our, our thought process of what the good life is it changes, and it certainly changes in different seasons of our life. And this is why it's absolutely essential that we set markers and we set goals for ourselves so we know what we're aiming at. So once we achieve it, if, if we don't set a marker and if we don't set a measure of success for ourselves, the problem is we, we set ourselves up to never experience contentment. And the New Testament tells us that godliness with contentment is great gain. The godliness with contentment is a great gain. And the problem is if we don't set up targets and measures for ourselves to target and measure our success, then as soon as we experience something, we want to look at the next thing. And we don't take time to celebrate the victory. We don't take time to celebrate the wins. We're on to the next thing. And the problem with living a life of that philosophy is it's never enough. We're always on to something else. We always want more. And I recognize that even if we set the parameters, even if we have clear targets and we practice contentment in our lives, that our idea of the good life can change. You ask most 25-year-olds what the good life is, you're going to have a different answer than if you ask most 75-year-olds what the good life is. This, this answer will change during the course of our lives. And I know there are some people who always think the good life was decades ago and it'll never be experienced again. I think every generation kind of thinks their generation was the best time. And we just got to guard against that thinking and, and putting down other generations. But irregardless, irregardless of what you would define as the good life, today we're going to see that God gives us a recipe that we can experience the good life. Now, part of the good life we can't get around. Part of it is that our lives would emulate Jesus and that our lives would look like God wants our lives to look. That is standard. But beyond that, a number of things that would go into our definition of the good life are variable. 
what kind of house we're going to have, what kind of car we drive, what kind of career we're going to have, etc. There are not right and wrong answers to those questions. They're different for every person. And the same variety that God has created us all with, He's given us different passions and different pursuits. And all of those things are good. And all those things are, are fine as long as we follow God's recipe. And that's what we're going to see today as we wrap up 1 Peter chapter 3. So if you have your phones or your tablets, I'd invite you to follow along with us in the Bible app. It's a free resource that you can download in the app store of your choosing. And once you have it downloaded on your device, there's a feature within it called events. And you can either enable your locations or type in zip code 54201 and there Lakeside Community Church will pop up and you can follow along with us that way. If you have a traditional Bible with you today, we're going to be in the New Testament book of 1 Peter. We've been walking through 1 Peter for the last few weeks. And today we're going to wrap up 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 10. If you're joining us via the stream, the verses will be available on the screen below. Last week, as we started 1 Peter chapter 3, we looked at verses 1 through 9, and we saw God's recipe for fulfilling relationships. We saw God's recipe for fulfilling relationships. And today, as we conclude 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to see God's recipe for the good life, however it might be you define it. So we start in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, where we read these words. For whoever desires to love life, and see good days. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. You want a good life? Here's the first few steps. If you want a good life, the first step, and it's absolutely essential, is this. Be a person of integrity. Be a person of integrity. You want to live the good life? Be a person of integrity. Allow your lifestyle to match your message. Be the same person you are when people are watching as when no one's watching. Do the same things you would do when you're all alone as you would with an audience. Be consistent. If you say something, deliver on it. Be a person of integrity. This is the, this is the essential first step if you're going to experience the good life. And it is be a person of integrity. This is the very first step that we're told. Be a person of integrity. Next, guard what you say. Guard what you say. Have a filter. Just because you think it doesn't mean you have to say it. Just because you think it doesn't mean you have to say it. Guard what you say. I know some people... that you might need a second or a third filter because the filter that's there has a little wear on it, okay? And it's not getting everything that it used to get. So if that's the case, ask some people around you, do I maybe need to install another filter because it's not filtering enough. But guard what you say. Just because you have the thought doesn't mean the world's going to be better for hearing it. Guard what you say. Be a person of integrity. Guard what you say. And, and the next thing we see is to speak the truth. To speak the truth. Be a person of integrity. 
Guard what you say and speak the truth. And if you will do these three things, if you stop listening to me right now and you just do these three things, you will set yourself up for so much success. Please don't stop listening to me because there's a lot more we're going to unpack today. But even if you were to, even if you were to, you would set yourself so much further ahead of the rest of our culture just by operating as someone of integrity, just by guarding the words that you speak and by being people who are truthful. You would set yourself up so far ahead of most of our society with these three simple steps. Integrity, having a filter, and speaking the truth. And these are the first steps that God gives us here in 1 Peter chapter 3. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So you're a person of integrity. You have a filter. You're truthful. The next step is to analyze your life and to recognize we can't just do whatever we want. We can't just do whatever feels good. We have to follow God's design and we have to follow God's plan. And we all recognize that that at the forefront, sin is fun. It promises us something more fulfilling. It promises us something more exciting. It promises us a better result. It promises us a pathway to pleasure. It promises us all of these things. The end result never changes. At the forefront, it always seems appealing. It says, if you want to live the good life, you have to just stop pursuing pleasure on your own terms. It can't just be about what feels good. It can't just be about what you want. You have to operate your life according to God's plan. That's going to ultimately bring you more fulfillment. It does every single time. Sin always promises. It always promises us more fulfillment, but it fails to deliver every single time. Its promise has never changed, but its results have never changed either. And it always promises more, but it always results in less. It says, you want to live the good life? Reject this notion that we see all over society that says, just pursue your pleasure above all else. And live your life according to God's plan. Live your life God's way instead. And then he tells us, seek peace and pursue it. I love this. Seek peace and pursue it. Seek peace. You know what I've recognized in my life? I don't have to seek after things that are easily found. I don't have to seek after things that are easily found. Now, according to my wife, nothing in my life is easily found because there are numerous times I'll be in the fridge and I'm like, hey, where's that? She's like, right there. I'm like, no, it's not there. And she'll walk over and she's like, right there. Like the other day, I was out cutting the grass and before before I started cutting the grass, she said, hey, I'm going to the store. Do you need anything? And I said, no, I'm good. Thanks so much for asking. I'm going to cut the grass. And then I was out cutting the grass, and then I realized I don't have anything to dump the grass into. So I sent her a text and said, hey, can you pick up some more trash bags? Thanks so much. And I put my phone down. I was listening to a podcast. I'm out doing some 
other yard work. She comes pulling into the driveway. I meet her in the driveway. She said, hey, I got you some more trash bags to go with the unopened box on the third shelf next to the sink in the garage. And I said, I said, there aren't any trash bags on the third shelf in the garage. She said, yeah, there are. Go look. And I went and looked. And there were no trash bags on the third shelf next to the sink in the garage. And I felt so good about myself. And then I turned the corner, and I don't know what kind of voodoo David Copperfield out of retirement illusion magic trick she did, but when I turned the corner and was standing next to the sink on the third shelf was an unopened box of garbage bags that I did not see from the other angle, and there they were. So we now on our third shelf in our garage have two, ba two boxes of garbage bags, the box she bought on Friday and the box that we had in there before she went to the store that I didn't find. And some of you are like me when it comes to finding peace in gar garbage bags. You're like, I can't seem to find it anywhere. And you just got to keep looking. You may have to adjust your angle. You may have to adjust your perspective a little bit. But you're like, I, I, I just... It eludes me, and I don't know why. And I've just got to ask, are you seeking it? Are you seeking it? And here's the thing about peace that we're told here in 1 Peter chapter 3. It's not enough just to seek after it. Because peace is like a kid with ADHD that just drank Mountain Dew and had a pixie stick playing hide-and-go-seek. That as soon as you find them, then they take off and bolt. And now you got to run after them and catch them. It's not enough just to see, oh, that's where peace is. As people that follow Jesus, we've been called not only to seek it, but you have to run it down and you have to grab it. You have to be in pursuit. Because it can be elusive. But you want the good life? Be a person of integrity. Have a filter. Speak the truth. Don't pursue whatever passion you want to pursue, but make sure it aligns with God's plan in your life and seek after peace. And when you found it, run after it and chase it down. Because it'll be elusive. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What we're told right here is this is how we get God on our side. This is how we experience the favor of God in our lives. God has just told us, here's how. Here's how you win my favor. Here's the life that I'm looking for from those of you that follow me. This is what I desire of you. And I don't know about you, but if God's going to give me a recipe to discover his favor on my life, I want to lean into that. I want to hold on to that. I want to adopt it in my life. I want God's favor in my life and on my life. And 1 Peter 3.12 tells us exactly that. God is saying, this is the recipe to experience my favor in your life. And I know the question that's in your mind. So does this mean if we're people of integrity, if we have a filter and we watch what we say, if we speak the truth, 
if we stop pursuing whatever we want to pursue and pursue what God wants us to pursue, and if we seek and pursue after peace, that God's favor on our life is going to mean that everything's perfect? Everything's pleasant? Everything's easy? Is that what this means? Is that the promise that God has given us? And I want to remind you that Peter, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, is writing this letter to a group of people who have fled their homes, left their families, left their friends and the lives they knew before behind. Their crime which caused them to be refugees was following Jesus. Make no mistake, the good life, the life that God has in store for us, the life that God desires all of us to lead is not a promise that everything's going to go perfect in your life. It is not a promise that you're never going to experience hardship or troubles again. As we look at the end of 1 Peter chapter 3, we're given the perspective to recognize what happens when we experience those hardships, what happens when troubles come. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Peter says, what bad thing, what bad thing can happen to you if the favor of God is upon you? What horrible thing can happen in your life? What could you experience in your life that is so bad if God's favor is upon you? And here's what we do. We start to formulate the lists. This could happen, this could happen, this could happen, this could happen, and this could happen. And all of these possibilities become our fears and our anxieties that play over and over and over again in the soundtracks of our minds. And in no way am I trying to say that the things that are on your list that right now worry you and cause an anxious feeling in your life, in no way am I trying to minimize those things. And in no way am I saying those aren't big deals. Because oftentimes they are. Oftentimes they're really significant issues. Oftentimes they're really challenging problems. I'm not trying to say that there's some easy spiritual solution that if you just do this more, all of these things disappear. We live in a broken and flawed world. There's going to be trouble. There's going to be hardship. Sometimes we invite it upon ourselves. Sometimes we don't. It just comes and visits us as a byproduct of living in a broken and flawed world. But nevertheless, we all have the list. It looks different. 
that's there for us all. And in no way is the promise of the good life that God promises us a guarantee that we will never experience anything that we ever have to worry about or anything that would ever take some of our time and our energy that we have to process and think through. That's not the guarantee that God has given us. But instead, the perspective that Peter is offering us here is this. You may suffer some. You may suffer some. But when you do, you don't fear. You remember that God's got you. You remember that God's got you. And what happens is when our list of those anxieties and those worries, when, they, when it just starts to formulate, and when it becomes the soundtrack of our minds, and when we can't shake it, what happens is our energy and our focus is taken off the magnificence of God. And it's transferred to our problems. And our problems grow bigger and bigger and bigger the more attention we give them because we've spent our energy focusing on the problem. Whether we realize it or not, we've diminished God in our minds by failing to remember no matter what we face, God is greater. No matter the diagnosis, we have nothing to fear because of who God is and what He has done for us. Should our worlds crumble, should we have to leave family and home and friends and lives behind, should we go to a new place and discover a whole new normal, to discover a whole new life, and our only crime being that we followed Jesus. That is the situation, the first audience of this letter from Peter. That is the situation that was their life. Peter is telling them, even if you lose it all, and there is no certainty in your world left, you can be certain of If your life is in line with what God desires, you have nothing to fear. And if your life isn't in line with what God desires, if you look at your life and you say, I'm not a person of integrity, I don't have a filter, I say whatever I want, Twitter's my best friend, and I love being able to tweet whatever I want to tweet, I don't really worry about speaking the truth, I do whatever feels good, and I don't really care about living at peace with people, I'm just telling you right now, right now is the time for you to stop and retreat. Not tomorrow, not an hour from now. Now is the time for you to stop and retreat and invite the favor of God on your life. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, 
always being prepared to make a defense to anyone that asks you about the hope that you have in your life. What hope is there when you've left your family and your friends and your life behind and you're starting over and you're starting in a new normal and there is no certainty? What hope is there? And the answer is your hope's in Jesus. It's where your hope is always meant to be. And when your hope is solidly in Jesus and you allow the reality that God is bigger than your circumstances, that's not to diminish your problems. You have very real problems. But God is greater. And when you recognize that and when you refuse to allow anxiety and worry to to guide your mind, but instead you focus on the goodness of God and on the power of God, and the glory of God, and that is where your focus lies. You live differently than when you're worried about everything. And when you live with confidence and you live a life of integrity and you have a filter and you speak the truth and you don't just pursue whatever you want to pursue, but you honor God with your lifestyle and you seek peace and you pursue it, people look at you and say, you're weird. That's different. What's the deal? Peter says, always be ready to tell people about the hope that you have of Jesus. And that might freak you out. Some of you might be like, I don't know how to talk about my faith. I, I don't know what to say. Here's where you start. Tell the story of what God's done for you. Tell the story of how God's changed you. Tell the story of the difference in your life as a result of Jesus. And recognize, God doesn't need you to win his arguments. God doesn't need you to win his battles. God isn't in heaven like, I really hope Joe nails this debate. Because if he doesn't, oh, this person's never going to discover me and I just don't know what I'm going to do. You don't have to win an argument, but you do have to be ready to tell the story of what God's done for you. You don't have to shout at people. In fact, don't, please. Instead, you share with people the hope of Jesus that you've experienced firsthand. You share with them the transformation that he's made possible in your life. You be a person of integrity. Have a filter. Speak the truth. Don't just do whatever you want to do and seek after and pursue peace. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. I, I'm fascinated by this. When you are slandered, not if. When you are slandered. For, for people who've been called for our lives to emulate Jesus and so that we would live our lives in the same way that Jesus lived his life and that Jesus is the one we follow, why would we think if Jesus was slandered and Jesus was misunderstood, we won't be slandered and we won't be misunderstood? 
Why do we think, well, Jesus was a pretty good communicator, but I'm a great communicator. So he was misunderstood and he was slandered, but I'm not going to be misunderstood or slandered. I'm going to follow Jesus, but people are going to see me different than they saw Jesus. It makes no sense. And I recognize it doesn't feel good to have people say mean things about you, especially when they're not true. It doesn't feel good. I mean, you're a sick kind of person if you're like, oh, I just can't wait till somebody says something real mean about me that isn't true. Like, that's, no. You need a psychiatrist if that's you. Nobody, nobody is like, hey, I, I really hope they make up some mean lies about me and tell everybody about me. It doesn't feel good. So what's our response? To stick it to the haters. And that's biblical. And you know how you stick it to the haters? Not by shouting them down. But by living a life that honors God. So that when other people hear the haters, they look at you and they say, wait a minute. That doesn't make sense. You're saying this, this, and this, but that's a person of integrity. That's a person who speaks the truth. That's a person who's got a filter. That's a person who doesn't just do whatever they want. This is what God's called us to. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Peter goes back to the gospel. He says, remember what Jesus has done. That while we were sinful, God whose standard is sinless, sent his son Jesus, full divinity, clothed himself in full humanity, so he was fully divine and fully human, and he came and he met God's standard, the standard of perfection, which we can't measure up to, and he died on the cross for the cost of our imperfection is death, and Jesus paid that cost. He paid that price for us, and he offers us redemption, that he is righteous and we are unrighteous, but he invites the unrighteous to join him in his righteousness, that God would do this for us. Peter goes back to the gospel and he uses it as a reminder that this defines who we are. This changes us at our core. Following Jesus changes everything about us. It changes us at our core. It makes us new. And again, it serves as a reminder, why would we expect anything different than what the one we follow experienced? In which... He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And now we get a little weird, okay? We just do. We're going to pull back the curtain. God pulls back the curtain into the spiritual realm and you're going to want more answers than I can give you and that's okay. 
we can talk about it for hours. It's a great conversation. I'd love to have, uh, but but we get a little a little weird here because we don't have all of the answers. But what we do have is this. So Jesus comes down, he dies on the cross for our sins. At some point after Jesus died on the cross, he goes to the spiritual realm. Again, God pulls back the curtain for us here. And we don't understand all this, but Jesus goes into the spirit realm and he goes and he proclaims the victory that he had just secured by paying the price for our sin once and for all. And who does Jesus go and proclaim this message to? He goes and he proclaims this message to a group of demons who have been in spiritual prison for thousands of years. We have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 6, where we see in the time of Noah just outright wickedness in the world. And, And we might look at our society and we might look at our culture and we say, what is happening? I just want to remind you that as bad as it might appear to us to be now, it's nothing compared to what it was like in the times of Noah. And you're like, how do you know that, Brian? Here's how I know it. In the times of Noah, there were eight people who followed God. Eight. Noah and his family. And some of the demons who were going out and and bringing about all kinds of wickedness into the world that you you can read about in Genesis chapter 6. God takes and he puts them in a spiritual prison and it looked to them like they were winning. When you look at the population of the world and certainly wasn't populated as, as large as it is now, but you look at the population of the world and there are eight people eight people that followed after God, Noah and his family, it looked like the demons were winning. God puts them in prison. Jesus has paid the price for our sins once and for all on the cross. And he goes and he declares his victory. The war is over. God is one. I want to encourage you when that list of worries and anxieties and fears and uncertainty, when it comes and when the soundtrack of it just keeps repeating and reverberating in our minds over and over and over again, when the slander of people that used to be friends or family, or even strangers we've never met before comes our way, when we look at our society and we shake our heads and say everything, everything is a mess, what hope is there? Our hope is not that there's going to be some kind of political solution where all of a sudden we put aside all our political differences and everybody gets along and we all see the world from the same perspective. That's not our hope. Our hope is in the fact that Jesus, once and for all, was victorious. No matter how hopeless things appear, we have the ultimate hope. When that list just keeps getting bigger and louder in your head, 
I want you to remember the victory of Jesus. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to Him. And he's talking about baptism here, not as, not as water baptism, and he draws the distinction here as he says, not as a removal of dirt from the body. He's talking about the spiritual baptism that happens at the moment that we make the decision to follow Jesus, that we are united with Jesus in His death, burial, and resurrection, that we are joined together spiritually, that we who are unrighteous are now seen as righteous as a result of what God has done, that the, the Spirit comes and resides within us. That is the, that is the Spirit baptism that is talked about here at the end of 1 Peter chapter 3. And he says, you remember this. And why does this matter? Because Jesus is supreme over everything. This doesn't mean your troubles. This doesn't mean your circumstances don't matter. It doesn't mean that you won't have real problems. You will. your problems don't get to define you. Other people's perspective of you doesn't get to define you. Who you are in Jesus, that's now what defines you. And the result is that we are to live the good life. And it doesn't mean that we're never going to have problems, but it does mean that if we will walk in integrity, and we will guard our words, and we will speak the truth, and we will pursue God's desires for our lives instead of our own pleasure and doing whatever feels good. And if we would seek after peace and pursue it, we would experience the good life. And we would invite God's favor on our lives. And no matter what we face, and no matter what we experience, we have nothing to fear. Because in the end, the cross of Jesus means we're victorious. Because we have been joined with Jesus in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. And the challenge is when the anxieties and the troubles come and plague our minds to redirect our focus and remember the greatness of our God. God, I pray that we would be people that live the good life, that we would be people who walk in integrity, that we would be people who watch what we say, that we would be people who speak the truth, that we would pursue what you would have for us, God, and your plans for our lives, that we would seek peace. And when we find it, we would chase after it and run it down. And God, we know we'll experience troubles in this world. We know we'll be misunderstood. 
but I pray that we would be people that in those times of trouble and in those moments of being misunderstood we'd force ourselves to remember that you are greater than anything we face comfort our hearts encourage our souls as we live for you Jesus in your name we pray